Jeffrey Regals was a 56-year-old man from New Jersey and a lifelong fan of the Philadelphia Eagles football team. 30 years he was a season ticket holder, and uh, you know it takes a lot of tenacity to be a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles. They have not won a Super Bowl ever. They have not won an NFL championship since before the Super Bowl was called the Super Bowl. But Jeffrey Regal was a diehard fan. He even mentioned the Philadelphia Eagles in his obituary when he passed away a few months ago on August the 18th of 2017. When he died, his friends read in the paper his request that eight members of the Philadelphia Eagles football team would serve as his pallbearers. Why? He wanted to give his team one more chance to let him down. We all know what it's like to be let down. Not by a football team necessarily, but, but then again, perhaps so. Uh, most likely by a family member, by a friend, by a company, by a school, and dare I say it, even by your government. We know what it feels like to be let down, and maybe that's why we latch on to and love the promises of God so much. Because through the promises of God, we actually see the heart of God. And we discover a relationship with an amazing God because of his unshakable word, because he offers us a storehouse of hope through his unbreakable promises. We're going to begin in prayer for this message, and I'm aware that we are a small group today. I'm aware that many people are sick and have the flu. I know that there are those restricted to rehab facilities and nursing homes. And those are just unable because of the weather to get out. And I want to pray for them and for all of our guidance into this new year. So I'm going to ask if you would bow and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do pray for them. Them being those that feel the winter and the struggle that comes in winter as a season of their life as they struggle with physical and emotional infirmities. Lord, I just pray that you would give them hope, as we talk about this morning. ask that you would give them a storehouse of your presence to draw from, to know that you will never leave them and you will never, ever forsake them. Lord, we come before you as your people to acknowledge just the need we have, that our hearts need to be uplifted as we lift you up. Father, I pray for our sins. I pray for our shortcomings. I pray for our frustrations. And God, you know that this preacher has all of those things at work in his life. And so I pray for him that he can step aside and that that we can look only at you today. Because, Father, you're the one that takes the frustration and gives joy. You're the one that takes uh, the sense of, of unease and gives peace. And you are the one that we need most of all and always. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask if you turn in the scriptures this morning uh, to the book of the church, the book of Acts in the New Testament in the 26th chapter. I listened this past week to a story uh, about the contrast here, and I thought it was so good, between the rabbi and the king. The Jew was old and bent, and he had no bodily advantage. Two years in prison had left him gaunt. His cheeks 
hollow and his face besmudged. His purse had a few coins and his entourage had but a couple of friends. His beard was full but gray and anyone who knew him would have known he was only able to wear the cloak of a simple traveling preacher. Compared to the king that he spoke to, he was simple and he was impoverished. But of course, compared to King Agrippa, uh, anyone would have appeared the same way. King Agrippa and his sister entered the courtroom that day with all the pomp and circumstance that a king could attract, followed by Roman legionnaires. King Agrippa was the curator of religion for the area, the overseer of the region, but he was no friend of the Christians. Paul knew King Agrippa, and he knew that he was the last of the Herod dynasty. Agrippa's great-grandfather was Herod the Great that had tried to slaughter Jesus at his birth when he was born in Bethlehem. His granduncle would murder John the Baptist, and his father, Agrippa I, would execute James. And he had the same intention for Peter, but he left him in prison. You might say that his family had had it out with the followers of Christ, and now one more stands before him. The Apostle Paul. He was in trouble for preaching and for teaching the good news of the gospel. What Agrippa saw as as a new religion. So how would the Apostle Paul defend himself in what was undoubtedly one of the most important speeches of his life? How would he justify his, his actions of being a purveyor of this newfound faith? Would he appeal for mercy? Would he beg for for justice? Here's what he did. After a word of two of introduction, here's what he said to Agrippa in Acts 26, verses 6 and 7. He said, and now it's because of my hope in what God has promised that our ancestors that I'm on trial today. Verse 7. This is our, the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. It's all because of my hope. His reference, his defense, it included no reference to his accomplishments. You see, Paul himself had had seen some mighty miracles performed by God through him. He himself had prayed for the dead to come alive, and they had. Paul's defense included no reference to his citizenship, no appeal for preferential treatment, none of that. His explanation was, well, I just believed that God would do what he said he would do. I believed in the promises of God. So did Abraham. So did Noah. So did a prophet named Isaiah. So did a Hebrew maiden by the name of of Mary and a young man named Joseph. So did a preacher by the name of Peter and this apostle by the name of Paul. You know, one of the fascinating things about scriptures is that heroes come from all walks of life. Some were single, some were married. Some were educated, some were not. Some were powerful, some were simple. Some were rulers, others were servants. But one common denominator seems to unite them all together still. They believed in the promises of God. Because Noah believed in in God's promises, he believed in rain before rain was even a word. Because Abraham believed in the promises of God, he would leave a home that he had known all of his life towards a place that he would not yet seen. 
Because Joshua believed in the promises of God, he led two million Jews smack dab into enemy territory across the Jordan River. David brought down a giant. Peter rose from the ashes of regret like a phoenix. And the Apostle Paul found a grace worth dying for. All because they believed in the promises of God. They knew this. And this is just an extension of what I talked about on Christmas Eve. They knew this. You could believe in the promises of God because God is a promise maker. God is a promise maker. One writer went so far as to call such people as you and I heirs of the promise. As though you and I are there when the will is read of the promises of God. They are our fortune. And these men and women were smart enough to show up at the reading of the will too. In fact, I want you to hear a little bit from an extended passage in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11, verse 7 uh, begins this way. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who'd made the promise. And so from this one man, although he was as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance and welcomed them, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they left, they would have had an opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, he offered Isaac as as a sacrifice, the child of a promise. And on and on, the hall of faith goes in Hebrews 11 of people who trusted in in God's promises. I love the story of Joseph and the faith, the trust that he had in God's promises. Moses, who trusted in those promises. Their stories were different, but again, the denominator was the same. The promises of God were their north star, the north star that led them on the pilgrimages, the adventure of their faith. And boy, they had a lot of promises Uh, to pick from. If I had to ask you this morning, how many promises do you believe are in the Bible? How many would you say are there? 100? 200? 500? Or 1,000? There was one young man who was a, a student in college. He set out to count the promises in the Bible. It took him 18 months to do so. And he finally concluded in the list that there were 7,486 promises. Isn't that amazing? 
And I know we're small here today, but before we leave, we're going to study every single... No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. What the pine trees are to the Rocky Mountains, the promises of God are to the Bible. Prolific, everywhere, unending, unbending, and perennial. The prophets spoke the promises. The apostles spoke the promises. They are the, the stitching and the stem and the spine of our Bibles. And not only does God make promises, but it's also actually very clear that God keeps his promises. He's not just a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. Every promise of God is amen, according to the Bible, in Jesus Christ. God, his promises are irrevocable because of who he is. Look at this from James 1, chapter uh, 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's unchanging. He sees the end from the beginning. There is nothing in your experience, nothing in your life that God has ever caught off guard about. He never needs to make a mid-course correction. He's not victimized by the moods or by weather patterns. God is unchanging. And what's more, he's ultimately faithful. Hebrews 10.23 says, So let us hold unswervingly, to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. God never overpromises or underdelivers. Romans 4:21, we'd be fully persuaded God had the power to do what he had promised. Most of all, we know we have a God that cannot lie. You know, this world is, is a difficult place, isn't it, to find people who tell the truth all the time. God never can be caught in a half-truth or in an innuendo. The Bible says what in Hebrews 6, verse 18? In fact, why don't you read this out loud with me this morning from Hebrews 6, 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. It's impossible for God to lie. It's not that he, he chooses not to lie. It's just deceit. It's just not part of, of who he is. Titus 1-2 says God does not lie. He has no fallen nature within him. It's not in his character to lie. It is sterling and spotless. Titus 1-2 also says God promised before the beginning of time. Friends, when you read any of those 7,000 plus promises of God, you can take it to the bank. If God said it, it will come to pass. It's true. I listened to a man this week talk about a memory he had as a young child with his father. Uh, when he was 12 years old, his dad allowed him to go on, on this trip as he traveled from their small town they lived in to Lubbock, Texas. It was a Saturday, and their goal was to purchase new tires for the family car. And this boy's father, he, he was a man that was just simple, Unadorned by wealth, unimpressed by power. He was a West Texas oil field mechanic. And he had a deep conviction that a man is only as good as his word. And he was seldom riled. He was not easily ruffled. But there was a day, that day in Lubbock, that he got ruffled, that he got riled up. 
You see, they had mounted the, the tires and they had lowered the car on the rack, on the lift. And it was his dad's turn to pay for the tires before they left. Now, some of you younger people like my daughters are going to find this hard to believe because you're not as old as, as the rest of us. But there was a time when people could write things called checks. Okay. And, and not only that, but you could write checks and you did not have to show verification or identification. Anybody here remember that day? Don't, don't laugh too loud. Your, your, your false teeth might fall out. It's been a long time ago, right? Uh, it just so happened, though, that they'd started making that a common practice in a lot of places. You had to show verification. You had to show identification if you wrote a check. And it trickled down to that tire store in Lubbock, Texas. And it it just struck this young man's dad the wrong way. He wrote the check out, he handed it to the clerk, and the clerk said, Sir, we're going to need to see your driver's license. And the man said, What? He said, We're going to need to see your driver's license. And the interchange that took place, this young man was listening, and he said, Son, you don't believe I am who I say I am? Well, no, sir, it's not that. You see, are you calling me a liar? Well, no, sir, it's, it's not that at all. Let, let me tell you something. You go in there and you take those tires back off my car right now. Whoa. There was an awkward silence, but the boy remembers at the end of it all, uh, they did go home with new tires on the car that day. But it's a great lesson that he learned about honesty. You see, people who take honestly seriously are serious about honesty. Now, if, if just a simple man... A good man, but a man nonetheless could do that. How much more would a holy, unchangeable, uncreated, ungoverned God be concerned with honesty? The Bible is serious that God is serious about keeping his promises. What was said about the way that God protected the Israelites, it can be said about the way God protects us. In Joshua 21, 45, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. So the question is not, will God keep his promises? The question is, will we build our lives upon him? Will we build our faith? Will we see his church built upon his promises? I've got two questions I want you to consider this morning, and these are in your bulletin. Upon what are you building your life? And which promise of God will define your new year? We're all building our lives on something. Maybe you're building your life on the dependability of your spouse. Maybe you're building your life on on the promises of your company that you work for. Maybe you're building your life on, on the dependence you have on a friend or the economy. I would suggest to you that every one of those places are risky places to build a life. You might be doing what Jesus talked about when he talked about two builders. You might be building a house on sand. You remember he talked about the two builders, don't you? The parable is in Matthew 7, 24, and it says very simply, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and not just hears them, but puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down. The streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and they don't put them into practice 
is like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. You see, the two builders had a lot in common. Both built, both had a term of supplies, both had a house, and both faced a storm. But one chose to build on the sand. Maybe the site was cheaper. Maybe it had easier access. The other house was built on a stone, on a foundation of rock. And maybe it was more expensive. Maybe it was more difficult, a little out of the way. But it endured the storm. You see, just because you choose to build your storm on the rock, it doesn't mean you're not going to face a storm in this life. It does mean that whenever the storm comes and the rains fall and the the streams rise and the winds blow, that you will not get wiped out. So again, the question is, what are you building your life upon? We have a God that loves us enough that he gave us a storehouse of hope to build from. And as you think about those two builders, which one of them do you think was happier? And which one of them is more like you? But what are you building your house? And you know, promises, they do us very little good if we don't ponder them. And the more you sample the promises of God, the more you whet your appetite for his promises that just carry you through this life. And then you share your hope. I, I don't think you'll have to think very long if I ask you, can you think of someone that needs a little hope in, in this world? You won't have to think long before somebody comes to mind. Hope is in such a short supply today. Did you know the suicide rate in America has gone up 24% since 1999? If any other disease, any other problem went up by 24%, we would call that an epidemic. So what explains such an increase or a spike of people that are orchestrating their own departures? We've never had more entertainment. We've never had more comfort. We've never had more ability to travel the way that we do today. So how do we explain the deep sadness and despair that many people face as they look into a new year even? Well, I think for all the answers, I think one of them has to be on the list, and it's this. There is just a lack of hope. There there is a despair and a hunger for hope in this world. You see, our world is taught by a secular society that really life is all about what you can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, that there's really nothing spiritual and nothing to look forward to beyond the grave. There's no real purpose here. We're we're just a, a circumstance, an accident of nature. That's called secularism, and that's the mindset of our world today. And that just draws the hope out of a society. But if there's more, if there's more to life than what's between birth and death, there's something to hope for. There's life, there's energy, there's excitement. And I believe that our world is hungry for that kind of hope. People of the promise We are purveyors of hope. We pray, we ponder, we proclaim the promises of God. 
and the people who were heroes of the Bible, they did just this. They were like Abraham of old, of whom it is said in Romans 4.10, Abraham didn't tiptoe around the promises of God, asking cautiously skeptical questions. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. I like that. One man said, I like to think of the promises of God like an apothecary's shelf, like a pharmacist's shelf. And it has a remedy for every human condition. And they're stacked up on the shelf just like you might put your medicine bottles in, in, in your medicine cabinet in your bathroom or, or in your kitchen cabinet where they're easy to get at. And the people of promise know how to treat the fears and the struggles of this life with the promises of God. Let's say you wake up January the 1st, 2018, and you just feel like the world is out of control. Well, instead of reaching out for fear, you reach out for the bottle that's marked Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And rather than giving in to fear and trepidation, you stand on the promise of God. Or maybe you wake up one day and you're just overwhelmed. You've got more troubles than you can count. And you reach over to John 16, that you keep on your nightstand. And you open up the bottle. I, I've told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you can have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And rather than being overwhelmed by your problems, you choose to build your house on the promises and stand with God. Or maybe sometimes you feel all alone. Maybe you wrestle with loneliness and that has nothing to do with how many people are around you because you can be in a crowd and be lonely. But in that, in that lonely moment, maybe you pull out Luke 21, 25, or you pull out another verse and, and Jesus gives you the encouragement to remember, maybe like, like Gideon in the Old Testament in Judges 6.12, when it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord's with you, O mighty warrior. What a great and precious promise. And rather than be filled with fear or loneliness, you can say, I, I'm not alone. The presence of God Almighty is with me. Or maybe a promise that, that is special to you is, is Luke 21, verse 25 through 28. Given the fact that, that we have seen some crazy weather patterns this past year, and they're telling us we're going to see even more in this coming year, catastrophic storms. Uh, there was another earthquake in California this past week. That's six in the month of December alone. We've watched fires burning out of control on, on the West Coast. And we think, what are we to make of this bizarre set of circumstances? Well, there's a promise in the Bible that speaks to that in Luke 21. When Jesus said there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, on the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming upon the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. 
Most people see storms on the way and they hunker down and they, they look down. But when Christians see the storm coming, we stand up and we look up and we know Jesus is coming for us. We look at the signals and we know our redemption is near. And rather than giving to fear, we stand on the promise. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1.4. Through these he's given us his very great and precious promises. So that through them you might participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world caused by evil desires. You see, he didn't say they're just valuable. They're precious. They're not just good. They're great. And as great and as precious promises, these are the stones upon which we take our journey from sin to salvation to redemption. I want to close by giving you a quote this morning from Dwight L. Moody, great evangelist in the Chicago area over 100 years ago. He said this, Let a man feed for a month on the promises of God, and he will not talk about his poverty. If you would only go from Genesis to Revelation and see all the promises of God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the Jews, and to the Gentiles, and to his people everywhere, if you would spend a month feeding on the precious promises of God, you would not go complaining about how poor you are, but you would lift up your heads with confidence and proclaim the riches of his grace because you could not help it. Let's be who we were meant to be in 2018. Let's be a people of the promise. Let's sit up. Let's have our shoulders back, our eyes lifted and our lungs filled with air and our heart filled with hope as we proclaim, I'm building my life on the sure and secure promises of God because his word is my life. My hope is unshakable. I do not stand on the problems of life or the pain of life. I stand on the great and precious promises of the one who loved me. And if that's what your heart believes today, then you can honestly say, all God's people said, amen. Would you stay with me this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we stand, let us stand on your promise. When we fall, let us fall in the grace that draws us to you for forgiveness and strength. Father, help us to, to be a people that change. Not a people who, who do it in their own strength or their own will. Because it's not by might and it's not by power. It's, it's by your spirit, as you have said, Lord. Lord, let this be a place where your promises are not just discussed and shared, but they're built upon so that our neighbors and our family, so that this community can see that what stands, stands by your power and faithfulness. And it's attractive to them. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that's struggling with salvation and accepting you as their Lord and Savior, then let them be those who fall on the grace that first brings them to you today to say, Jesus, I need you. Not only to acknowledge you are the Savior of my life, 
I need you as my Lord to follow. I need you to guide, not only to forgive, but to show me the way of life. Father, help us to choose you now and always. In Jesus' name.